You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IVP Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So, I'm here with Esther Juni. Many of you, of course, know her husband, uh, Dr. Sam Juni, who does a program with me called Standing in Two Worlds. I'm here in Yerushalayim, actually, in their beautiful apartment here in Bekor Chayim, here in Eretz Yisrael. Esther, I'm talking to you because, first of all, I know that you're one of the main reasons that you and Sam decided to move to Eretz Yisrael, right? Correct. Right. That was sort of a dream you've had since you've been a little girl to live in Eretz Yisrael? Not so little, but certainly since college age. I almost moved here after college, which was in the Six-Day War. But my parents, who were Al-Bashalom, who were Zionists, took the news that I might leave very hard because it was just, just the two of us, brother you and, and I. Brother, sure. My brother and I, and my parents are Holocaust survivors. And the thought of me being so far away from them scared them. So I decided not to do it. All right. Of course, had you had you moved, you might not have been Mrs. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been someone else. Probably I wouldn't be talking to you now. But still, the fact was this was something I knew from, you know, I've, I've had a relationship with you guys for a very long time longer than perhaps either of us want to own up to. But I know that this has been something you've been wanting to do. And you guys were living very comfortably and in a very nice way in Brooklyn. And you decided, hey, it was important uh, finally to make the move to Eretz Yisrael. And although I know you still uh, come to America often because you do have relatives, and yeah, but really Eretz Yisrael is, is, is the heart of your existence. And that's an incredible thing, especially growing up as a little girl in Charleston. South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. What helped spur it on, though, was that my daughter had already made Aliyah. So I already had family there. Dr. Shalomis Pollock. Dr. Shalomis Pollock. And as it turned out, my son made Aliyah the same time as we did. So that's Dr. Aaron Dr. Judy. Aaron Judy. Right. He made the same, on the same flight. <sighs> and my daughter, Tikva Juni, who spent three years in Israel here, always wanted to go back. We didn't want her by herself. She uh, has special needs. And we told her that once uh, someone made Aliyah, we would consider uh, sending her to Eretzisrael. But it's not right to give, put the sole responsibility for her on Shalamis. So uh, Tiki also very much wanted to move. And in fact, she made Aliyah a month after we did. Right, right. Yeah, Tiki is actually a wonderful woman and a great speaker for people with disabilities. Way beyond that as well, of course, she's... Uh, She's a big favorite in our house, too. Good friends of my daughter. As I said, this is not really just to talk about us. We really want to talk about what's happening now. But I really wanted to set the table to let people understand that for you, uh, living in Eretz Yisrael is the life you wanted. And it's a life that you proudly embrace. And now you're really feeling it because I understand that three of your grandchildren have now been called up and are actually in active duty right now. That's correct. And I have another two grandkids who are in seminary this year here. Right. And I'm sure, you know, they, they have their own issues in terms of being in a place where, where there's a war. A, a war when they're not, it's not what they were expecting. So talk a little bit about, I actually know the three grandchildren because they're, I, I served as the rabbi Houston. So I got to know the family a little bit there. I know one of, the, I know your, your granddaughter. She's a uh, expert. Well, well, no, she, she is, I mean, she works in the education department. She's an officer in the education department. And she's not combat, because in Israel you can choose to be combat or non-combat. But 
non-combat and wartime means that you're not doing your regular activities. You're, you're doing more combat-like activities, even though you're not on the front lines. But what she is doing is guarding a base. I mean, together with the other people on the base, but she's one of the people guarding a base. So normally that wouldn't have been concerted much. But in view of what happened with the people who are guarding bases, that's... Uh, right, that that's, that's the, they've, that's, got a, they've got a target. They've got a target. They've right. got a target on their back. And, mm-hmm. and your daughter, right. of course, is in the line of fire. Right. And I know that she is a uh, expert marksman. She's a good marksman. I mean, that's not what she does. She works in the education department. But for uh, one of her assignments, she was <laughs> training recruits. And, um, yeah, she one of the things she taught them how to do was to shoot. Was to shoot properly. Correct. Right? And, and, and to have the fortitude and, and aim and concentration and and coordination, everything else that, that goes into that. That's um, right. right. And then you have the other boys. Are those the twin boys? Those are twin boys, that, right. yes, but they're in two different two divisions. Different two different units. I mean, they're both combat. One's an engineering unit and one is, a, I guess, a regular fighting unit. Have you heard from all the Thank the Lord. Um, yes, I have. Well, I have heard from the the oldest one, the non-combat one, and she um, has spoken to her brothers, and her brothers are about a month short of having officially finished their training, which means that, strictly speaking, they cannot be put into a combat position because they have not finished their training. However, one of them explained to me before, way before the war, that when that happens, what happens is that the actual people who are trained in combat will go on the actual war zones, and then the people who are waiting to finish training will actually assume the jobs they did when it was right. not combat. Again, on the base. On the base, is. that's right. They'll be on bases, they'll be guarding bases, they'll be guarding towns, that kind of thing, yes. Did, did you attend all those ceremonies? I know when my son was initiated, we had to watch it virtually, um, did you go to all your grandkids? Uh, Virtually all. Well, the yeah. one had a ceremony when we were not here, when we were in the States. So we missed that. Right. So and it isn't just like showing up in your mind, like showing up to the sitter party or showing up for a graduation. This was something a lot more significant. This was a milestone in their lives, but also like a you know, milestone in your family. You know, as you say, you know, you're, you're your parents' great-grandchildren. They were both Holocaust survivors, and here they are fighting. Right. Well, my my father especially, yeah, would have been very proud because my father was in in Europe, obviously during the Holocaust, and he was um, was not actually a fighter, but he was the kind of person who he was in a lot of tricky situations, a lot of dangerous situations, and he managed to get out of them, either through, sometimes through bribing people, sometimes sure. through using his smarts, and sometimes through sheer chutzpah, which paid off. And, and my parents actually lived here for a while after they retired. It was so very nice. Yeah. So, Esther, do you think the fact that so, I mean, your situation is not unique. This, 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 this whole country is full of grandparents like yourself who's... Right. These kids are serving proudly. Many. Is that, is that helping you, you think, deal with it a lot easier? The fact that you know that we're all into this, it's not just your cross to bear, so to speak, part of the metaphor. Um, yeah. I mean, most of, I have a number of friends and then a large number of people in this building. I mean, the fellow who does maintenance for this building was just called up 
So there are our friends, I would say probably the majority have someone, uh, at least one person who was called up. And sometimes it's a son, sometimes it's a grandson. Yeah, I mean, we are all in this together. And um, it's a, a stressful, stressful time for everyone. But of course, we're very proud of our kids and grandkids. But um, nonetheless, of course, it's stressful. What's your own reading? Though? I know that obviously people, we're not pundits and we're not geopolitical experts. Is your sense a feeling of positivity in terms of, of the way this war is happening? I have no doubt that Israel will win it. question just is, at what price? Because most people seem to think they're going to put boots on the ground in Gaza. That's Gaza's, I'm sure, houses and tunnels and whatever have all been booby-trapped waiting for them. Unfortunately, it may well result in... uh, Carbonos. Carbonos, yes, right. And I don't think they have a a choice because they can't just say, okay, we leveled a couple of buildings, now we'll go home. Because that's what they did <laughs> a number of times and right. uh, it didn't pay off. Right, especially, again, I, I don't think it's rhetoric. when They say, you know, this is going to, you're going to pursue this till the end. And you're right, it's going to come at a cost. I mean, even now, Hamas is saying that for every building that is uh, attacked, they're going to kill uh, some well, of our hostages. They said for every building that is attacked without warning. Because Israel, like, I don't think any other army in the world that does okay. this, but Israel, before it strikes a building, it sends out, I don't know, leaflets, or sometimes they like send out a little warning, something bump or something. Anyway, the residents know that the building is about to be bombed, and it gives them time to clear out. Well, look, we are, you can't trust them as far as you can throw them, right? You never know. I mean, they, unfortunately, I think, and it's a terrible thing to say because they want to keep us, they want to keep some hostages because they want Absolutely. the release of their own people. On Absolutely. the other hand, I would say anybody who's taken hostage is in a case of Sarkonis Movis worse than anything we've known since the Holocaust in terms of uh, oh, the chances of surviving. And, absolutely. Uh, it's a terrible thing to say, but I think it has to be said. Yeah. Another thing, I, you know, before we end here, I know you take your religion very seriously. In many ways, you know, I, I see you as very much the one of the strong guiding powers of religiosity in your family. And you don't take the words of the rabbis lightly. You sent me something which I haven't got a chance really to, to, to look at in depth, but of Silberstein's grandson indicating that on the terror that occurred on Shabbos, that there were certain conditions that were not harmed, even though they were in proximity to the terrorists. And sort of the, the intimation was that these were people seeing that were either Shomer Shabbos or had put up gates or had done things uh, in a way that were more aligned with Halacha. And I felt that this was something that should not be said. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that to look at this Black Day in Jewish history, it's going to be a Black Day in Jewish history and talk about the fact that here was the from people that were saved, the people who were keeping Shabbos, uh, the, the, the God protected them from the attack, and somehow the terrorists didn't go there. I think that is something that's a message which is very contra to Jewish unity right now. So many of the people that are fighting and putting their lives on the line for us are people who don't care a whit about mitzvahs 
and as our cook says, but they have a tremendous soul of connectivity, a uh, type of thing maybe they can't even explain themselves why. We need messages from Gedola Yisrael, either Schilderstein or others. But that ain't the message that I think needs to be heard now. I think everyone is not only in shock that this occurred, considering the vaunted Israeli intelligence service, I think the fact that it occurred on the day it occurred, on Shabbos, on Shemitah Tzeres, on the day that's supposed to be the pinnacle of, of Jewish, the height of the Yom Naroyim, the Jewish the, the unity with God, I think uh, there needs to be uh, some thought about where things have to go. Do you, are, are you of the opinion that somehow the fractured aspect of, of Israeli society made us more vulnerable to the attack? I think certainly our enemies thought, um, while judicial reform is very important to some, the divisiveness that it has brought has been terrible. I mean, it's basically divided the country in half. And a war like this brings us the message that we're all one. And we all need to be united. We all have common enemies. We're all one people and that we need to be, uh, and, the, and it's important for us to be united and not to be fractured. And things like judicial reform may be important, but not at the expense of the unity of the Jewish people. Right. As you say, it's on both sides, really extremism and pushing your getting the way you want it is obviously the opposite of working together in terms of as a society defending itself. So Esther, thanks for taking this taking time to talk about things. Of course we our tefillot, of course, our tefillot are with with your grandchildren, with all the, the brave chayalim. Um obviously our country needs the tefillot of all of everyone. As you say, God God will still be with us and I hope we'll be able to talk again soon. Okay. That's it my friends. We'll hopefully catch you at a different time. Be well. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.